Amen. Thank you guys so much for leading us in worship. Can we thank them for the work they do? Yeah, that's great. If you have your Bibles, I want you to open that to Zechariah chapter 3. This is the last of the minor prophets that we will spend time in on Sunday mornings. And it's been... These are hard. They're hard to understand. They're hard to wrestle with. And I'm grateful that we got to do this as a church. Hopefully you've been able to do the devotions that Jared has been so good to email each week. You may have noticed those were written by different people who were in some way associated or affiliated with our church. I've written one. Josh wrote one. Tyler Clark, who is uh, the pastor of Table of Hope, the church that we come alongside of, that we're planning to come alongside of in the new year, he wrote one. We have had some really important people to the life of Grace Bible, in my opinion, who've written these devotions, and hopefully you've spent time in those. If not, they are still there. So feel free to devote thyself through those minor prophets. Zechariah is the last that we will cover. Zechariah is the longest of the minor prophets. It is 14 chapters long. And Zechariah, if we look at it, is very unique. He is operating in a different way than the others seem to at times. Where the rest of those are making a, giving us a subtle pointer to the person of Jesus, Zechariah talks about Jesus throughout. There are numerous references to the Messiah who will come in the book of Zechariah. And I don't want us to overlook what God is saying to us there. That God is saying something to us about Himself. And the first thing that we see, the, the book's broken into some visions and then into the Messianic kingdom. And when you read these first eight chapters, He's talking explicitly about these visions. God gives Him eight visions. He's operating at the same time as the prophet Haggai, and both of them are dealing with the idea that God's people have been brought back into Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, to make sure that they are declaring that they are the people of God who are covenanted in relationship with God. And when God interacts with Zechariah, he is dealing with the idea that some people just need to be encouraged. It starts with these dreams that he's having. Maybe you are a dreamer. And over the course of the last 15 years, my wife has reminded me that I snore like a, a really like a freight train, just a terrible, terrible noise. And over that course of time, whenever I would be in a hotel and I would have someone else in the hotel, they would agree. They would say, yes, you absolutely snore like a freight train. Eventually, there comes the point in all of this snoring where I have to go to a doctor, uh, because they wanted to test me for sleep apnea, and I was interested in the, what that conversation would look like. They, they tell me they're going to plug me into all of these things that was going to be very similar to what happens on Star Wars when they put you in the back of the tank, and they asked a question to me. They said, when you dream, what do you dream about? And I had no recollection whatsoever of any dreams. And she went on to say that... Dreaming is a sign that you are sleeping well. When we read through this text, we see God is making a reference to Zechariah through his dreams, through these visions, through these prophecies, these eight nighttime visions. I'm going to run through them quickly, and then we're going to deal with what I find to be the most essential for us as a people. The first, as you will see in Zechariah, is that there's a man among a myrtle tree. And it is pointing to the idea that the God who we worship is sovereign over all things. 
The second is the, uh, this vision of four horns showing that the world will be overthrown by this God. There's a reference to a measuring line in the third prophecy that it's a city without walls. Talking about the, the, the nation of Jerusalem and a city without walls lets us know that it is a city that has no need for security. That the kingdom of God that is established in the person of Jesus doesn't need to be defended because in the midst is the conquering king. The one that we will spend our time with today is the high priest. We'll also see there's a golden lampstand. It, it, it reminds us that God is going to rebuild His temple. There's one about flying scrolls, not squirrels, that's different. <laughs> Judgment on those that don't live by God's law. There is a vision of a woman in a basket. And that is pointing to the wickedness that is carried, to ba carried out by Babylon. And finally you see a, a vision of four chariots that God's army is going to take the nations. You have this whole story about a messianic future that God is doing a work. That God is not just coming, but He is coming in a person. And in coming in a person, He is coming to shepherd the people who are His. He is coming to shepherd His flock. When you read through the prophecies of Zechariah, as I said earlier, you get more references to Jesus than any other prophet, save Isaiah. And, and for example, in 9 verse 9, you see the triumphal entry reference. In 11 verse 12, you see, the you see the betrayal for 30 pieces of silver. In 12 verse 10, you see that this Messiah would be pierced. In 13 verse 7, you see that his followers would scatter. Those are just a glimpse as the prophecies referencing Jesus in this passage. And when you look at the name Zechariah, it has meaning because all of these names have meaning. It means God or Yahweh remembers. The God remembers. God remembers everything. Zechariah is unique in comparison to the others. He is a prophet that was born in captivity. He has never really experienced what it would be to be God's people in the midst of this kingdom that is reigning and ruling. He has experienced it from afar. And here, Zechariah is going to have an interaction with Yahweh himself. So Zechariah chapter 3, let me read to you verses 1 through 10. Let's see what God has to say to us from this passage. Then he showed me the, the high priest Joshua standing before the angel of the Lord with Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. May the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Isn't this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed with filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. So the angel of the Lord spoke to, to those standing before him. Take off his filthy clothes. And then he said to him, See, I have removed your iniquity from you. And I will clothe you with festive robes. Then I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So a clean turban was placed on his head. And they clothed him in garments while the angel of the Lord was standing nearby. Then the angel of the Lord charged Joshua. This is what the Lord of armies said. If you walk in my ways and you keep my mandates, you will both rule my house... And you will take care of my courts. I will also grant you access among those who are standing here. 
Listen, High Priest Joshua, you and your colleagues sitting before you, indeed, these men are but a sign that I am about to bring my servant the branch. Notice the stone I have set before Joshua. On that one stone are seven eyes. I will engrave in it I will engrave an inscription on it. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies, and I will take away the iniquity of the land in a single day. On that day, each of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and fig tree. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. Again, when you look at 1 through 3, what we find is the accusation that is made against the high priest Joshua. You, you notice here that when Zechariah is given his vision, he does not have a vision of himself. He sees the high priest of the people, the grand champion of the people, standing right there before God. And as he stands before God, there is one who is accusing him. The big idea that we have for today, as you will see on the screen, is that the work of God is our only hope. If God is not at work, then we are hopeless. If God is not active, then we are in a terrible situation. And here, you see this accusation is in place. Joshua the high priest, the champion of the people, he stands before Yahweh. And as he stands before Yahweh, he is in a situation. This Joshua represents the people in full. And as Zechariah has this vision, we are to be reminded that if Joshua is there, then in a sense, the people are there. And this is the high priest reflecting what is actually taking place, not only in himself, but in the lives of the people. Every year, the Jewish people would celebrate a, a solemn holiday called the Day of Atonement. And on the Day of Atonement, there would be multiple sacrifices where the priest would have to go in and out of the Holy of Holies, offering a sacrifice on his own behalf. And that's a, a, an extended process. When he would come out, he would be cleansed and bathed again. He, he would go in and offer a sacrifice on behalf of the priest. He would come out, be cleansed and bathed again. He would go in a third time on behalf of the people offering sacrifices this is a process and that's just the Day of Atonement itself. Leading up to that, there was this large bit of time where he would have to seclude himself from the people, spending time reading his Bible, spending time interacting with God and in prayer. And we see this vision that God gives and when you see it, Joshua is in a unique place. But before we ever see anything about Joshua... There in the midst of Yahweh, in this heavenly courtroom, is the one that we know as Satan, the accuser. And the accuser is there to do what accusers do. He is there to accuse him. The accuser is there to let him know how bad he is. And in letting Joshua know how bad he is, he's letting the people know how bad they are. The accuser is there to tell Joshua that there is no hope. To let the people know that there is no hope. And because of these things that we see true in Joshua, we can see them in each and every one of our lives. The accuser is there to accuse us. Satan is there to tell us how bad we are. He is there to tell us that there is no hope. He is there to function in our lives as one who will point out our flaws, our shortcomings, where we have let God down and let the people around us down. He stands there letting Joshua... And letting Yahweh know how bad Joshua is. You'll notice in the passage that when it says that he, you have Joshua standing before the angel of the Lord, 
It is not as if he is simply standing there. What we can know is this is not a passive action. This is actually him representing God, to, representing the people before God. This is a picture of his mission, a picture of, his, of what God would have him to be and how God would have him to interact in his world. He stands there. And he's doing the work of the priest. And there the accuser is letting him know how terrible he is. Think of the way that Satan speaks to each and every one of us. Think of the accusations that he uses to accuse us. He is a liar, for sure. But sometimes he uses true things about us to lie to us about how God may actually feel. So we have to begin to wrestle with what is the difference? What is the difference in being tempted and tested? What is the difference in, in conviction and, and being condemned? Are these things different? Do they function differently? And here's the best way that I can understand this. When God convicts us of sin, it is because He is for you. When Satan condemns you, it is because He is against you. God is for you. He is for His people. He is for His people knowing Him. He is for His people loving Him. He is their representative. God loves us. So we see in this text that you have Joshua. You have the, you have the accuser Satan. You also have the angel of the Lord. Which is a pretty massive deal in the entirety of Scripture. The angel of the Lord, when we see him in the Old Testament, in reference to what we see with Zechariah here, many believe to be a, a precursor, a reflection of the coming Jesus. That we would see God in their midst. Am I completely sold on that? I'm very much sort of kind of sold on that. However, what we can know is that this angel of the Lord that you see in this text is always standing on behalf of God. God, He is representing God. You see Him in the book of Joshua, chapter 4 and 5. Different Joshua altogether. The Bible likes to use some similar names sometimes. And then you'll get a weird one like, hey guy. But you've got Joshua in the book of Joshua. The commander of the army of the Lord is approached. When he is approached by Joshua, Joshua says to him, are you on our side or are you on their side? And the response of the commander of the army of the Lord is, no, I'm on my side. God is always on His side. The invitation for us is to be people who align ourselves with what His side is. God is at work in this text, and He is reminding His people that it's to be dealt with. You notice that in verse 2. The accuser standing there to accuse, what does He say? Nothing. The Lord said to Satan... The Lord rebuke you, Satan. May the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Isn't this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Two things that we see. Before Satan can speak, God speaks. And what God declares is what is declared. It is final. And Satan is removed from this conversation altogether. But we do have to notice that when Joshua is accused, the whole of Israel has been accused. When this grand champion has been accused, 
Israel as a whole has been accused. Before Satan speaks at all, he is told to shut up and that his opinions do not matter. And then God says, isn't this a man burning? Isn't this man a burning stick snatched from the fire in verse 2? To say that is to say God has removed him from the fire. This doesn't mean that the accusations are not true. Well, what are the accusations? We've not even heard them yet. We just have Satan standing in the midst of God. Joshua, verse 3, was dressed with filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. If you will remember, the whole purpose of the high priest is to be the cleanest of the clean. Their methods, their practices were for the sake of Joshua, the high priest, or whomever the high priest happened to be, to be as clean as clean could be. Satan has come to say that this man, and therefore Israel, is filthy. Standing in the midst of Yahweh, the angel of the Lord, and Satan, is a filthy high priest. What Satan said about Joshua or was planning to say about Joshua, was evidently true. What sin does to us is something that is true. It is something that is in effect in each and every one of our lives. He's filthy there. God, the interesting thing that we see though is that God knew it. Satan was not going to come to Yahweh with any information that Yahweh... You, you know, that's a great idea, Satan. Let's run with that. However, when Joshua is filthy, it lets us know that the whole of Israel is filthy. Reminding us that each and every one of us, in and of our own power, are filthy. He's wearing filthy clothes. Now, that word does not quite convey what's taking place in regard to this man and the filth that covers him. It, it actually reads that he is covered in excrement. And when we read through the majority of the prophets and we consider what would take place on the Day of Atonement, this excrement was the uncleanliness of the animals that were sacrificed, what had been removed. It was dung. It is filth. He is filthy. And how often have we, in the presence and in the consideration of what the accuser does to our hearts, what he says to our souls, acknowledge how filthy we really are. In the deepest, darkest moments removed from distractions of life, how often do we in our hearts see and, and feel how filthy we are? The weight of that. Ed Welch, biblical counselor, says this. Shame can be because of what you did. Shame can be because of what you did not do. Shame can be because of what others did to you or what others did not do to you. And that's just the start. You have this passage where Yahweh, the Lord of hosts, looks at a man who represents the whole of Israel as their champion. And he is not fit to be their champion. That seems bad. 
We move from the accusation to the purification. Go into verse 4. So the angel of the Lord spoke to those standing before him. Take off his filthy or his excrement-covered clothes. And then he said to him, See, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with festive robes. I have removed all of the filth, and I am putting clothes on you which should make you celebrate. That we would see celebration that comes because God speaks on our behalf and takes away the things that make us filthy. Not because we are not still behaving in ways that are separate from Him, but in ways that say that He has dealt with what needs to be dealt with. And we'll notice this with the people of Israel. When Joshua is pardoned by the work of the angel of the Lord, we are reminded the whole community can be pardoned. The whole of the place can be pardoned. The changing of his clothes speaks to the hope of Israel. And his cleanliness, I love this, the cleanliness that Joshua receives in this passage, the cleanliness that the people of Israel are enabled to receive, and the cleanliness that each and every one of us are able to know and receive is not because of anything that Joshua did not say, I need to take off the dung clothes. It comes through the divine decree of God. Our cleanliness is because of God's decree. Period. Exclamation point. Choose your punctuation. Can't be a question mark. Definitely not a comma. God deals with everything. John Bunyan says this, Our sins when laid upon Christ were yet personally ours. They were not His. So his righteousness when put upon us is yet personally his. It is not ours, but he allows it to be. Verse 5. I said, to, this is my favorite part of the whole text. All ten verses. You have Zechariah standing, watching these things in a dream state because he doesn't need a CPAP machine. And when he sees this taking place, he begins to scream. When God puts the clean clothes on him, he yells, Put a clean turban on his head too. Make sure you got that. Don't forget the turban. So a clean turban was placed on his head and they clothed him in garments while the angel of the Lord was standing nearby. All of this taking place, this, this man who represents the people of God is made to look as one who should represent the people of God. God cleansing. Verse 6. In 6 and 7, we see the charge or the expectation that is sent in the way of Joshua. What God would have this man who belongs to him to do, what he would have him to look like, how he would, how he would have him to be seen. So the angel of the Lord spoke to those standing before him. Right, I'm sorry, that's 4. Six. Then the angel of the Lord charged Joshua. This is what the Lord of armies says. If you walk in my ways and you keep my mandate, you will both rule my house and take, and take care of my courts. 
I will grant you access among those who are standing here. God says to this priest, I want you to not lose sight of what I've told you. To not overlook what I've said to you. To not miss what's been declared to you. Because this is not simply a matter of your you being made right. It's a matter of you looking in a way that says that God has made you right. There's this consideration that every one of us as believers in Jesus, we simply have to wrestle with. If God has done a work in our lives to undo what sin has done, are we, are we weighing out the responsibility of living in a way as if sin has been undone? In every aspect of what sin does. Of belonging to a certain kingdom. Are we, are we people who live and belong to the kingdom of Yahweh? Are we people who are aligning our hearts with the message of Yahweh? Are we seeking to declare and deliver the hope of Yahweh? Are we embracing this idea of messianic purpose? That God who would deliver His people by dealing with sin would would show Himself in people who live as if sin has been dealt with. That this is not passive. But everything is rooted in the hope of the good news of the promised Messiah. That there will be one who would deal with the damage and the darkness of sin. If we preach anything about expectation apart from Christ crucified and resurrected, then all that we've done is give a damning report as to how to behave because your behavior can't get you in out of a mess that it, it got you into. Our darkened hearts are there. Yet God has promised to be our righteousness. Jared Wilson says this, a preacher's issuing, this is for preachers, but just take it and run with it. I'll wear it. Preachers issuing spiritual instructions without gospel centrality is to be Pharaoh demanding bricks while withholding straw. If I were to tell you that you need to be clean for the sake of being clean, or to behave for the sake of behaving, then I failed you as a pastor. If we sing songs that expect those things of you, then we failed you as your worship leaders. If we are to say anything to you when we take communion in a few moments about the benefit of that communion coming because of the good that you brought to it, then we have done a disservice to you. Everything that we do, everything that we are, everything that we believe, everything that we expect, everything that we hope for comes not because of you, but because of Christ crucified, Christ resurrected as your declaration of what hope really is. Amen. So you see the charge of Yahweh for Joshua, which is the charge of Yahweh for His people. Because you have been cleansed, live as if you've been cleansed. There is so much that needs to be seen in the lives of the people of God that is easily overlooked because we don't realize how bad our sin really is. Sin is dark and wicked and separates us. And I think the most overwhelming aspect of sin that we forget is that it is dark and wicked and all of those words, but we are numb to the damage of it. So we forget who God would have His people to be. Because we forget what He's delivered us from. Even here, you see as Yahweh points His people toward the promise. The promise is 8 through 10. Spoiler. Listen, High Priest Joshua, 
you and your colleagues sitting before you, speaking evidently of the non-high priest, the low priest, I don't, I don't think that's the actual Bible word, <laughs> sitting before you, these men, they're just a sign. Imagine that you have chosen to participate and to be part of an annual tradition that the whole of your people are connected to, that everyone has expectations for, that people will go as far as to bring animals to be sacrificed. And you are told it's just a sign. It's just a sign. What's it a sign of? You and these men, what, what you do every year when you go through the process of considering the sacrifice of these animals, the blood of bull and goats, all of the times that you take the bath, all of the times the people can watch you, by the way, they can watch all of this unfolding. He's behind a veil. He stands as their champion behind a thin veil. And if anything goes wrong, it means that everything has gone wrong. The weight of that. Here, Yahweh reminds Joshua and reminds Zechariah. And in the reality of the passage, reminds each of us. All of the Old Testament sacrifice is but a sign. It's a sign of something that is to come. What is it a sign of? What you do, it's just a sign that I'm about to bring my servant the branch. Old Testament language for the, the growth of the, the nation of Israel, the idea of God's true one coming. My servant, the branch. There's life there. There's growth there. Notice the stone that I've set before you, Joshua. On that stone are seven eyes. I will engrave an inscription on it. And this is the declaration of the, Lord's, of the Lord of armies. Again, the stone is another massive Old Testament reference to Messiah. You see it in Matthew chapter 21, verse 42. And we see it. In a passage in 1 Peter, the living stone, it's taken from the Old Testament. The idea of the one whom the built, who the people reject becoming the cornerstone of all that God will do. I will take away the iniquity of this land in a single day. Every single year, they're shedding the blood of goats and bulls and, and little birds if you're poor. And God says in this passage, all of this that you do every year, every year, this solemn gathering of my people, every single year, I'm actually going to deal with it. You're bringing us to the place where we will see that dealt with on a single day. We get... To the New Testament. 
And we see all of these prophecies about Zach, from Zechariah about Jesus coming true. We see that he's betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. We see that he rides in on a horse. We see that the people choose Barabbas over him. We see the rejection of the, the promised one of God. And we see him dealing with sin on a single day. No more blood. No more bulls. No more goats. Dealt with on a single day. No more uncleanliness. No more hopelessness. No more despair. No more having to realize the weight and the depth and the darkness of one's sin. That is all removed by this promised one. Jesus, the Messiah, the hope of the world. The Day of the Atonement. It's, it's the most solemn of situations. Can, can you imagine a, a festival that you go to every year that involves animals being slaughtered that is not solemn? There's nothing chippy about this. But when it's over, and, and the high priest has gone through the high priestly things that the high priest goes through, when they would return home, there was a celebration every year until the next. So let me just ask us a, a simple question. If this yearly solemn event was followed by a yearly celebration, why does it not seem as if we follow an eternal solemn event with an infinite celebration? Why are God's people caught up in these weird, weird situations where we act as if God does not reign, does not rule, is not our hope? He is our hope. Jesus is our hope. For the world being transformed, is she, that's not changed. Jesus is still the Your ability to argue your points and facts, does, that's not the hope. Jesus is the hope. And we see what God does as He takes the solemn mourning of His people. And it actually reads in Psalm 30 verse 11, You turn my lament into dancing. You remove my sackcloth and clothe me with gladness. This is what God does in the hearts of His people. So, how often do we dance? Are we glad? Because as solemn of an event is, as it is for us to remember the broken body and shed blood of Jesus, I would hope and I would pray that when you take of this cup today and take of the bread, you would also see deep down that is something that you get to celebrate. It's something worth celebrating. Because Jesus is our hope. He is. Would you bow your heads with me this morning?